The only thing that really matters at the intersection of AI and crypto is Airbnb for your graphics card. Um, and and that, that's it. Uh, that is more important than all everything else combined times 10. conversation with the managing partner of Multicoin, Kyle Sumani. Multicoin is known for the interesting Web3 theses. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered as legal, financial, or investment advice. Kyle, welcome to the Open Metaverse podcast. Hey, Mehdi. Great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. I'm very excited to have you, Kyle. Um, so, Kyle, everybody in crypto space knows about you and Multicoin, so I'm going to jump right into the meat of things. So, I recently read your tweet on top-down investing. So, can you walk us through the variables and elements of the market structure you look at whilst you're looking to invest from a top-down perspective? I'd say most of the discussions we have internally and in our investment team are uh, around trying to understand, you know, like, okay, if there are large players in an existing market why are there large players what are their their moats what are their what is their cost of capital what are their incentives and how do they think about um you know their their own competitive advantages and then conversely obviously there's some new startup that's that's pitching us um you know what unique insights does that founder have um on how to approach the market from a fundamentally different perspective um, and ideally in a way in which incumbents will be either incapable or unwilling to uh, acknowledge and respond. Uh, so my kind of favorite example of this is Helium, where, um, you know, if you understand the cost structure of, of a telecom, it's fairly obvious that they're paying for land, they're paying for labor to go build all the towers, um, they're doing all of that, that overhead work. And whether that's literally on Verizon or AT&T's income statement and balance sheet or whether they outsource it to American Tower, doesn't really matter. It's like it's a kind of a core cost of, of their business. Um, what we love about Helium is like you can look at this and say, okay, well, people have real estate they already own all over the world by definition. And if they can put up a hotspot in their window, um, then they basically get the land for free and the labor for free. And if you really think about the cost of what's going to go into to building a telecom network, th- those are two of the largest costs, um, coupled with the backhaul and everything else. You know, probably ninety nine percent of the cost actually delivering the service is land and labor. And so, we we kind of love that as our uh, favorite example of like how do you rethink um, a, a problem space and a solution uh, around the, a new kind of set of market assumptions. Um, so when we talk about you know markets that that's those are the kinds of questions. Uh, we try and answer. So, so when when you think about the the incumbent being disrupted, uh, do you guys also think about the durability of the startups you invest in? So, even though you guys might be investing in early stage startups, is that also the part of conversation? Is that also part of the discussion? Uh, or rather than durability, defensibility of these startups, do you rather go for the offense, which is which is network effects? Yeah, we we talk a lot about. 
um, what is the source of compounding in a business? Um, one possible source of compounding is is network effects, but network effects are not the only source of compounding. Um, but we actually have in our our deal demos, you know, we have like we have a, a template basically on, on how we produce them, and uh, one of the kind of section headers that people need to fill out is called what is the source of compounding. So yeah, we we are pretty focused on that. Um, in terms of a portfolio, you know, you make a venture bet, the kind of core insight works. Um, at that point, you want to just maximize total dollars uh, you get out of the investment. And, and that's really going to be primarily a function of market size and, and the ability to, to have some sort of compounding durable advantage. So um, we're, we're pretty focused on that when, when we invest. Uh, so, Kyle, you mentioned about compounding and network effects playing a big role. What are some of the other effects that 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 you also take into account? Maybe you can give some examples of that. I mean, there's there's different sources of compounding. Um, you know, n- network effects uh, are are a, a common one, um, but we frequently see uh, a kind of a more a more interesting source of compounding would be anti-network effects, um, which, which are not really discussed, but it's something I think is pretty important in crypto. Um, th- Anti-network effects are, are a more or less crypto-native phenomenon, um, which is basically gas fees. Um, it's never really been true in the history of software that you know, like demand goes up for a service, and then in in the very short horizon, the, the price of that service goes up five x, ten x, fifty x. And uh, while that is like theoretically true in, in all commodity markets, and like you know, Enron and Energy is kind of the case study of that um, about twenty years ago. Uh, it really hasn't been true in, in software markets or in compute markets, I should say, even, even more generally than software. Um, but it is a very obviously true in crypto. Um, and, and I think something that's pretty deeply underappreciated. So one of the things we think about um, that guides our investing is, you know, is there an approach being taken by a team that will lead to anti-network effects? And is that fully appreciated by the team and, and by others as well? Um, so that's kind of one interesting example of a, of a thing we think a lot about. Um, another thing we think a lot about in terms of sources of compounding are uh, partnerships and, re- and relationship channels. So um, there, there are interesting, as you start to get out of pure crypto land and into uh, teams that are working with, with businesses in the real world, um, there are very interesting sources of uh, compounding. So, so the easy example here would be uh, Dapper Labs and NBA Top Shot. Um, obviously, the NBA is like there is no other NBA um, for, for practical purposes, and so if you have that um, that relationship, like that, that's a that's a durable source of of compounding. Now, there's risk in terms of the contract renewal and whatever three years, seven years, whenever that contract expires, but that kind of a thing is is a pretty durable source of advantage. So, um, those are the other kinds of things we think about. Um, when we make investments. Um, so just to double click on that, uh, Kyle, uh, uh, like, do you guys also think about the magnitude of these compounding? Like, This question stems from the network effects. So when people discuss network effects, they also uh, think about the magnitude, the curve nature, the like curvature of these types of network effects. Are these also part of the discussion? Do you guys think of it from the lens of network effects or do you guys, guys kind of generalize it from, from a lens of compounding? Uh, I mean, I think of compounding as a superset of network effects. I, I think network effects are, are a source of compounding, but not the only one. Um, but yes, we certainly do think of them in terms of, of strength. Um, as an example, I'll, I'll go back to Helium. 
you know, with, with Helium, you build out this network of people who are putting up um, hotspots, right, all, all over the world. Uh, it's fairly unlikely that most people who put up a hotspot are going to be willing to put up a second and a third and a fourth. Um, and so you actually have like a durable advantage, which is basically like being first and finding the, like roughly the, the people who are likely to be the first to put up a hotspot. Um, like th- there's an inherent self-selection effect there. And so, uh, and there's explicit cost in being the second or the third or the fourth to get those people to, to put up the, you know, competitive theoretical hotspots. So, and I'll, I'll contrast that with, let's say, liquidity mining for just like some random DeFi token, which is like, you can always just create a new DeFi pool, make up a fake token and start handing it out to people. Um, and, uh, and, and that, that, that advantage is, is fairly undurable. Um, and we can see this uh, with things like Blur, for example, being kind of probably the most recent high profile example where you can fairly effectively um, design a, uh, a liquidity mining system accordingly. It's gotten harder to design competitive liquidity mining systems over time, but Blur has demonstrated that you know with with some thought um, you can you can do it to bootstrap something. Um, I think the durability of, of NFT marketplaces versus something like uh, let's say a, a wireless network not even really comparable. I mean, just the scale of these things are, are pretty different. So when these discussions happen, like especially when we talk about network effects, do you guys also like debate on network effects versus virality? Maybe the network effects we're seeing is more of a virality rather than genuine network effect. Like are those also part of discussion? Like with Blur, I could also argue that there's an element of virality versus uh, network effects. Yeah, I don't think Blur has any network effects. I don't think any NFT marketplace has any network effects and, and we, have invest, we have not invested in any of them um, for exactly that reason. Um, uh, virality is, is not network effects. It is a different construct entirely. Um, it is one we talk about. Um, my favorite example of a, of a type of product that, uh, has virality, but not network effects is, um, what's it called? Productivity suites. So think, uh, Google docs, notion, uh, office, th- those kinds of things. Um, notion kind of is, is the, the great case study here. Uh, prior to Notion, people were like, yeah, it's really hard to, to launch a, a new productivity suite and tool. Tur- turns out yeah, you have to build a bunch of cool features, but it turns out that a lot of people didn't like Google Docs. And yeah, there, there are, um, there are, I wouldn't even call them network effects. Like if you're inside of a company and the company has a subscription to Office or to Google Suite, then like, yes, you're just locked in to that contract and the company's not going to switch. I don't call that a network effect. I just call that like it's a contractual buying commitment. Um, but that that really has nothing to do with the next marginal startup using a new tool. Obviously, there's some learned behaviors and you know being used to the UI and stuff, but those aren't really network effects either. Um, but like, what's great about Notion is like if you get a let's say you build a new productivity suite or tool that is has some good features and people like those new features, and then they start using it, well. Any productivity, you know, document management tool uh, obviously has a share button, um, and then you send the link out to other people, so other people can start using it. And that share button existing um, is like the core element of virality, um, because that is now the way in which all of your next users are going to, you know, learn about Notion um, or whatever your your equivalent tool is. So we do spend a lot of time thinking about 
virality in this context. Um, a similar kind of train of reasoning can be applied to Discord. I think Discord has very low network effects. Um, uh, but obviously, there is a virality component to it, which is, hey, I am I'm in this Discord server. Um, if I'm going to start up another server for another purpose, um, like there, you can see that that virality effect happening. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, so we, we do think a lot about uh, virality versus network effects. So Kyle, I, I sit on the token tokenomics team of Animoca. So one thing I do a lot is think about token designs. So in terms of my heuristic or more mental model, when I think about token design is hybrid of capital asset, commodity, and currency. So which property, in your opinion, should DAP, middleware, and infrastructure respect, respectfully target more in their design and why? Um, so we'll have to I break it down into three. For, 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 for non-L1 assets, uh, L1s are pretty distinct assets, but for non-L1 assets, we generally prefer the commodity model. Um, for a few reasons. One, it, uh, I think has probably the best properties in terms of, uh, regulation Two, uh, pretty easy to understand and implement. And three, uh, has a very simple valuation model. Um, so our, that, that, that is generally our preference. So, so when you mention easier valuation model, um, do you guys model out the demand and supply? Is that how you guys think about the valuation from a commodity perspective? Yeah, yeah, cor correct. I mean, there's a whatever. There's a, a float of 100 million tokens. Demand is as, at, at a given dollar level, a given market cap for the token. Demand is whatever 20 million tokens per year. Um, then, like, okay, we know there's going to be that much buying demand. Um, we can then basically think about the the, the uh, value of the network as a as a multiple of of that buying demand. Um, so yeah, we 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 like that. It's it's elegant in terms of uh, explainability um, and valuation that you could basically produce a a DCF type or I should I should say DCF. That's the wrong term, uh, but but some sort of uh, uh, multiple model and understand like okay, I'm I am if I'm investing in this speculative commodity, uh, I understand the multiple I'm paying in terms of expected growth. Yeah, one, one counter argument would be like when you're trying to model this accurately, I think the issue is the accuracy, is because of the price fluctuation, you have this crowding out effect and demand destruction. So do you, do you think that is also reasonable to model or do you think from a heuristic standpoint that the model will be sufficient to kind of give you a direction? That, okay, oh, yeah, Every, everything has to be, the, the, the cost of using the service has to be dollar denominated. There, um you have to do the data credit model, which is what Helium and, and others do, and, and renders moving in this model where you, you need an oracle price between the, the token price and, and dollars, and then you're converting uh, token to, to data credits or rendering credits or whatever the credits are called. Um, that's the only way these work. Doing these things token denominated is, is nonsense. That will never work. Um, so, Kyle, just to do a thought experiment further, hypothetically, if there weren't securities risk or securities regulation. Um, why, why do you think ca capital type features are not suitable or, or may, may not be appropriate? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Like those dApps having token-like feature, which represents a capital asset. So let's say you, you have a yield, you have dividends, you have buyback and burn, things like that. 
Yeah, I mean, like from a uh, from a most investors' perspectives, those constructs are easier to understand than this commodity model that I just described with a burn and a multiple. Um, it's just like maps less well to securities laws. So, or I should say, is less favorable under current securities laws regimes. So, like, that's just an inherent trade off as a team you have to make between uh, how much do you look like stock versus how much do you look like a barrel of oil. And, like, th- th- that's not a binary designation. There are elements of gray uh, be- between those things. But, like, loosely, you could consider those two things the extreme. Um, and you can design your token system to, to look more like one versus the other. Excellent. So, Carl, so in terms of novel token designs or mechanism, um, like some, some of those designs that you actually like or you have thought about but you haven't seen in market, like I would love to like take your brain on that. Um, I don't think we've seen a token design, or I should say, I, I don't think we have constructed a token design internally that we think is kind of first order novel and useful and that doesn't exist. Um, so the one word answer to your question w- would be no. Um, there, there are generally at this point, I, I think most of the core uh, constructions or mechanisms have been uh, at least light, laid out or presented by one or multiple teams um, in different sectors, NFTs, DeFi, D-pin, whatever. Um, and then people are experimenting with how to parameterize um, different elements of those systems. But I I can't recall us kind of having any insights recently about uh, fundamental first order changes or, or net new designs. Got it. So kind of in terms of first order designs like this, do you think it's better the team takes that decision is it better to consult let's say other vcs uh like what are your thoughts on that um i i believe pretty strongly uh um there there's there's kind of two there's two classes of, of work startups do there's just like functional stuff and then there is like kind of things that are, are really core and strategic. Um, so an example of like a functional thing would be accounting um, or, or even like most design probably falls in this bucket. At this point, I'd say large amounts of engineering also fall in this bucket. Not, not all engineering, but certainly large amounts of engineering. Um, and then there are things that are like very fundamental and, and core. So this would be what is the product strategy over a long period of time? What is our insights about the market? Uh, what is our token design and like how are we designing our token distribution system to increase our probability of, of long-term success? Um, and, and those things, in my opinion, are, are extremely uncommoditized uh, and, and really require kind of first-order thinking about the nature of the opportunity. Uh, I am generally not a fan of outsourcing uh, any of those like core things that require first-order thinking. Um, and so I, I haven't loved the idea of, of token design consultancies um, because at the end of the day, they don't have to live with the consequences of the decisions they make. And the consequences of this decision explicitly like directly impacts the performance of the token and the long-term probability of success of the network. 
Um, I, I'm always a fan of put your money where your mouth is. Um, so I, I, I like, uh, I mean, we certainly help our portfolio companies think through a lot of these issues and, and we obviously do so when we've put our money where our mouth is. Got it, Kyle. I, I think in this world, there, there, there is a case that I might get employed. <laughs> uh, to uh, shift gears a bit, Kyle, um, I want to discuss about Ethereum. So I, I know you have discussed this a lot, um, but do you think will L2s and the modular architecture help Ethereum scale? Like, what are your views on that? Um, it, I mean, Ethereum is... Uh, making is 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 trying to increase the total throughput of the system that is not a debate um and it is successfully um moving in that direction meaning whatever you think the current total system throughput is is x in 12 months time i believe the throughput will be larger than x uh uh so that that's positive um i think a like kind of fundamental source of disagreement is like how much larger than X do those things need to be over over what period of time? Like, what what is the rate of growth of X need to be? That, that is kind of an inherently unanswerable question, um, but one in which I have fairly aggressive views. Um, I, I think probably I hold some of the most aggressive views on that question of anyone in the market, um, which is I think that number needs to be like a hundred like hundred X year over year, or at least ten X. Um, and I think most people don't think that's unnecessary. Um, the reason I, I hold such strong views as as the need for rate of growth is uh, I don't think you can build, I don't think real application developers will build real scaled applications until they know that they have a path to scale. Um, there's this like weird trope that goes around during bear markets, which is like, no, we have an abundance of block space. We need more apps. And like that, it's not strictly wrong, but but I think it's kind of missing the point, which is um, if you are a application builder and like you have conviction that your new whatever app it will have 500 million active users in three years, whatever. Like, where where would you build that today? Um, and like, I don't think Solana can support that today. Uh, I hope it can, but like, quite frankly, I don't think it can. Uh, and certainly not anything EVM based. Anything EVM based is like not even thinking at, at all in, in, in this ballpark. Um, and it turns out like if such, such person and such application theoretically exist, which maybe they, they, that, that person and that app does not exist. But, but if you assume that that person, that app exists, then that person is the single most important in all of crypto. They're more important than CZ, Vitalik, and Brian Armstrong combined, like times 10, because that person is actually going to make crypto matter to, to, to the world at large. Um, and so, like, in my mind, the only point of a chain is to basically find it, is to convince that person to build there. Um, and that, that's the only thing that matters in all of crypto. Uh, and uh, so, so I, I, have, I hold... So that's why I hold fairly aggressive views on on the need for um, increasing both total throughput and relatedly uh, the need for people to believe that fees will not spike during you know times of of congestion and, and high demand. Um, 
So that's kind of, I think, like meta comment A. Um, meta comment B is like, you know, you look at uh, 4844 and, and uh, all these app roll-up things um, that, that are obviously coming. And like they help, again, relative to whatever X is today, these things will increase X. Um, my general sense is like the, op- the, the optimists are saying like we are, we're getting a 20X improvement, so 20X. Uh, that's probably too generous. I, I think probably real world is closer to 3X, maybe 5. Uh, because in practice, ETH L1 is, is still there. There's still lots of liquidity there. Lots of things are happening there. It doesn't appear those things will go away. Um, and then and then two, uh, all of the L2s share the L1. And, and so we saw this happen about a month ago with all these meme coins. Uh, where like the cost of doing a transaction on Arbitrum or Optimism was like like a Uniswap trade was like ten or twenty bucks or something, and like those are supposed to be the low fee places to do the trades. So why are the fees so high? Um, and the reason is because because ETH L1 was congested, and so like it, does, it doesn't matter how much you think your L2 is scalable if the L1 is congested, um, and, and that that kind of highlights the the kind of fundamental problem with the EVM, which is um, it's a single threaded system. And sure, each rollup is can be its own thread. So like you get parallelism through many rollups, which which is technically true. But in practice, that like fragments liquidity to the point that uh and states to the point that you're not really getting meaningful parallelism effects, um, given what we have in silicon today, which is today, you know, modern geographics cards have four thousand, eight thousand, ten thousand cores. And that that is the the like the right way to think about parallelism is, is in terms of silicon. So, um, will will Ethereum, you know, be more scalable in a year from now than today? Yeah, obviously. Um, is it actually, you know, going to get us to uh, a state of the world in which we have 500 million on-chain users in three years? I don't. I don't think so. I, I don't. I don't understand even the most optimistic case you can draw between here and that point. So, so guys, while I was doing research on this, um, I, I came across the podcast, The Empire, and I think you recently appeared there. So one of the interesting thought experiment you were doing with regards to scalability as well as value accrual, uh, you were kind of walking walking us through the relative value trade between L20 Ethereum. So I think it could be in- interesting for our audience as well to to walk us through that relative value trade as well as the logic of that yeah um so the kind of source of value in an l1 today is i think there's three primary inputs um one is mev two is uh basically the 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 burn right 1559 style burning um and three is like the the commodity gas components. So just like, hey, you have to own some asset to pay gas. The fourth is you could say the monetary premium thing. I, I think that's kind of total total nonsense. Um, but we, we can revisit that separately. Uh, but like of, of things that are that are very explicitly value drive like indisputable value drivers, that those three are are objective and and clearly true. Uh, L2s take MEV explicitly from the L1. Not a question. Um, and they take the gas consumption, like the execution part from the L1 
Again, not not even a question. Uh, and like those are two of the largest value drivers to the L1. So um, they, they are like, you know, whatever the, there was value that was flowing to the L1, X, whatever that was. And now some fraction of X is, is no longer flowing to the L1. It's flowing to the L2. Uh, so it's, it's, that's, I think that's the definition of parasite um, in my mind. Uh, nutrients flow to your body and then you have a parasite in your stomach and now the parasite takes those nutrients like that, that that's the definition of parasite. Uh, so th- that's pretty clear in, in my mind. Um, the counter argument people make is, well, the L2 increases the total throughput of the L1 and therefore even with the parasitic behavior, you're, you're increasing the total market size by, by whatever uh, that, more, that more than compensates. Um, the, the problem with that framing is like it... Um, ETH, ETH was a $200 billion asset like, and then the L2 showed up. And so like, like the, the view of that, that would be ETH L1 on its own without any scaling would be a $200 billion asset because of w- whatever reasons it's, it's worth, two, just say it's worth 200 billion. Uh, and now these L2s are like strictly accretive. And like, to me, that's kind of crazy because to believe ETH is worth $200 billion, like you had to believe it was going to scale. And like the the known scaling path was was L twos that that's been discussed for God six seven years now whatever it's been and so uh, I I I kind of don't I don't fundamentally believe in this this argument that like the, the L twos are accretive to the L one um, the only reason the L one was ever interesting for any reason ever was because you had to believe there was a plausible path to scale um, and now that we understand the dynamics between these systems look four years ago we didn't understand how to think about MEV and uh, these other relationships, um, but now we do, and and so uh, you, you need to readjust expectations of value capture accordingly. So, Kyle, I, I would love to do a thought experiment with you on this. Um, so, let's say hypothetically, restaking via Eigenlayer or some of the other protocols they're building goes through, everything is smooth. Uh, do you think then the value proposition of Ethereum increases because then having a L two uh, uh, having an L2 token might not make sense because the trust layer of Ethereum gives gives the data availability, gives the sequences, gives the other validators interesting things to do. So what are your thoughts on that? So in that scenario, do you think the, the trade can invert going long Ethereum? Yeah, and, and yeah that, L2? Eigenlayer is the most interesting counterpoint to everything that I just said. And it's something, it's something we've certainly discussed internally. Um, obviously, what you're saying theoretically is clearly plausible uh the question is like will it exist in practice and that is extremely unclear uh arbitrum and optimism have raised god knows how many hundreds of millions of dollars uh the same is true for all of the other credible l1s um it, it turns out launching an asset ledger and getting people to build on your asset ledger uh requires a ton of cash um and so like yeah you can you can launch your eigen layer you know eigen eth secured l2 uh and hell assume it's an optimism fork or an arbitrum fork whatever like so so there's no technical changes required and assume there's zero engineering cost just just for extreme simplicity uh well like you still got to convince people to to actually deploy there and do interesting stuff there 
Um, and if you don't have a token, then like wh- where are you raising money from and like what incentives are you going to use and, and whatever. And so uh, it's, a, it's a very interesting theoretical argument. Uh, I don't think it will work in practice because uh, it turns out greed is good and, and greed is what enables people to go have reason to do work and, and build useful things. Uh, but, you know, TBD, we'll, we'll see. Maybe there's a super credible Eigen ETH secured L2 or whatever. I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, but it, it is certainly a theoretical argument that's very interesting. Uh, so, 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 Kai, you did mention the single-threaded nature of EVM. One of the core innovations you loved about Solana was parallel transaction execution. But there are other blockchains out there like Sui, Aptos, Fuel, uh, that also have that. So what are your thoughts on those ar- architecture? Uh, generally a fan of anything that, that is focused on native parallelism. Uh, I don't have... St- strong views uh, be- between any of the above at the execution layer because uh, I really don't think it, th- those differences matter. Um, I only care about differences that I can reason about in, in 10x notions or more. Uh, and like it's there's, there's no world in which you can produce a virtual machine that can execute code 10x faster than the SVM. Um, I, I, I don't think... The SVM is not introducing a total of 10x overhead in total execution. Um, therefore, like rel- relative to, to pure hardware. So um, the 10x gain is, is basically mathematically impossible. So I don't care is, is the answer. Like they're all good. I'm supportive of all of the above. Um, the performance differences are not meaningful. And obviously all of these teams will, to the extent any of them come up with interesting ideas, like the others will, will copy them over time. Um, so like those things will normalize over call it a 12 to 24 month horizon for any given, you know, major innovation. Uh, uh, what I like about those platforms is that they fundamentally align to the nature of Silicon. Uh, um, you know, uh, a couple of days ago, uh, Jensen Huang, the CEO of NVIDIA gave a keynote at Computex. It was like, I think 48 hours ago. And he was, in his keynote, he used the word accelerated computing something like 200 times, you know, just like kept saying it over and over again. And uh, he was very, very clear that, that that means like, I think two primary things. One, uh, massive parallelism. Uh, and two, uh, designing the entire software stack uh, around that premise. Uh, and uh, if you look at Solana, like that, that's explicitly what it is. And, and that's also what Aptos and Sui are. I'm, I'm not as familiar with Fuel, um, so I, I won't make any comments there. But um, Aptos and Sui are also very explicit in, in that focus. Uh, and, uh, you know, as I think about like the future of, of performance in computers, um, I, I think it's pretty much consensus now among most systems engineers and builders that. Um, the substantial majority of, of gains to be had on a go-forward basis are going to come from natively accelerated computing. Um, and so, you know, you know like we, we understand the kind of core limitations in physics here. Um, and whereas 10 years ago, those claims were, were fairly, uh, they were certainly not consensus claims and, and were kind of hard to take it at face value. I think today they are fairly consensus claims. Um, and so... Uh, like you, you want to map your scaling strategy of your blockchain based on kind of the core physics limitations. 
So I, I'm very supportive of all teams that that roughly map to that model. Excellent. Um, so Kyle, talking about Nvidia, uh, what are your thoughts on the intersection of AI and and crypto? Um, how are you thinking about about that theme? Are there any investments you have made within within this intersection vertical? Yeah, uh, actually, I have a blog post. I think it's going to publish any day now. Um, it's in legal review now, so it should be ready to go uh, on this topic. Um, there are lots of things you can. There are lots of fairly obvious things to do here. Things like block explorers with with native LLM search and, and stuff like that. Um, there's some kind of clever ideas around NPCs and, and, and other kind of NFT items, but like I, I think all of those are, are missing the forest for the trees. Um, the only thing that really matters at the intersection of AI and crypto is Airbnb for your graphics card. Um, and, and that that's it. Uh, that is more important than all everything else combined times 10. Um, it, it is, uh, th- there is a fundamental shortage of GPUs in the world. Um, this has been obviously true. The, the CTO of Microsoft, Kevin Scott, uh, recently went on the No Priors podcast like a week or two ago. And, uh, in the podcast, he said his number one problem as CTO of Microsoft for, for five years in a row has been GPU management and GPU allocation. Uh, I had expected him to say that since the launch of OpenAI and ChatGPT. I had expected him, I knew that was the correct answer to the question. I did not expect him to say that that has been true for five years. Uh, and like given the rate of demand growth, um, it, you know, it's just like, is, is the single most pressing kind of supply chain problem in, in the entire technology industry. Uh, and yeah, NVIDIA is figuring out how to ramp up supply and you know, like they can look, they can pay TSMC some more money and they can crowd out some other people so that, you know, smaller customers can't use TSMC fabs for whatever else they wanted to build. Um, but like, there's also just the, the lag time of building a new fab is like five years or whatever. Right? It's just, it's just an incredible lag time to build new fabs. And so whatever projections were for demand growth, like, and, and they're for all capital allocation decisions around fabricate around fabs were, were wrong. Uh, and there is an enormous lag time to write, to make those things right. And so you have this incredible discrepancy between demand growth and supply. Uh, I'm pretty sure demand growth for GPUs is at least 10 X in the last six months. And I think that's probably the lower bound. I, I don't know how to quantitatively measure these things. Um, but I'm fairly certain that's a conservative st- estimate. And I think it's probably closer to 100x than 10x. Um, over the next 24 months, I think we'll have a, a minimum another 100x in growth uh, as we get to AI-generated games, and in particular video. AI, you know, once we have... Like, Runway ML is kind of the poster child here. And it, it will... Uh, you know, in another... The, the stable diffusion moment for video is going to happen, I think, probably this year. If not this year, then early next year, certainly. Uh and uh, the, the demand is just going to be in, insanity, and so uh, you know we just we have there's just not enough silicon that can come out of these fabs, and so we need to figure out how to repurpose all of the existing silicon around the world um, to support these workloads. Um, if you could t- take every piece of silicon that exists on the planet Earth today, specifically every graphics card, and repurpose it to support workloads. Uh, ignore latency, ignore like memory bandwidth per card, wh- whatever. There's those obviously real problems, but, but but ignore them for for simplicity of the thought experiment. We actually would have a surplus of of silicon um, to to support these workloads. 
but that silicon just doesn't is not being configured to support these workloads in, in production settings and so um it's just an, one of the largest arbitrages that's ever existed in, in commodity markets um and so uh yeah we're, we're very focused on that um we have made three investments in that category um the first of which is render we invested in render two years ago uh and then the other two investments we've made there uh are not public yet so can't talk about them but uh yeah we're, we're super super excited about about that opportunity set um and it will be one of the largest opportunities in crypto yeah, so Kyle, you made three investment, kind of get a sense that it won't be a winner-take-all market. So, so yeah, so, so there'll be potentially more to come as well within that division, or do you think three is uh, suffice? Uh, we would like to do more. Um, th- this is not a winner-take-all market. I, I described it as Airbnb for your graphics card, which is a, a very crude but useful mental model to understand the use case. Um but but that that is overstating the technical simplicity. There, this market will fragment across many dimensions, uh, both in terms of um, workflow integrations to the actual development process, um, and then also around just like use cases and demand aggregation. So, uh, this will not be winner take all market in the slightest. Um, we expect to make many bets there, and that, this market will be fragmented across a number of variables. So, so Kyle, Multicoin is well known for its investment within the theme of uh, proof of physical work or, or useful uh, work. So apart from HiveMapper and Helium, are there any other interesting projects or themes you have invested in or are bullish on or thinking about within that similar vertical? Uh, there's lots of things in, in proof of physical work or, or DPIN that we think are very interesting. Uh, the only two investments we've made are Helium and HiveMapper. Uh, but we've certainly spent a lot of time and energy on a lot of other things in that sector and continue to follow it very closely. So, so Kyle, I, I again want to do a thought experiment with you on this. So, so what are your thoughts on some of the Web2 skeuomorphic design, like token incentive, incentivized Uber, Airbnb, Grab? Like, what are your thoughts on that? L- let's say, uh, what might your reservation be around these types of theme as well? Um, generally, I'm interested in them. Uh, I think they can work. Uh, I don't think any of these services will will replace their Web2 counterparts. So I think Web3 Uber will, will never kill Uber and Web3 Airbnb will never kill Airbnb. Um, but I think, they, I think these uh, mar- markets can exist. Uh, it's easier to do uh, Airbnb version than an Uber version um, because in... in uh, um, the Airbnb version, uh, well, one, just travel is inherently much more fragmented uh, than taxis. And that's for, for a bunch of reasons, but, but just very obviously, like there's more travel agencies, there's more hotels, there's more all of the above than there are Uber competitors. Um, and, you know, there's Uber Lyft and it's kind of it. And then in other markets, you've got like Grab and, and Didi and stuff, but it's just extraordinarily um, <clears throat> centralized market. Um, there's a whole bunch of reasons for that that like I won't get into now, but but that suffices to say that's the case. Um, the interesting opportunity around uh, Web three versions of these things probably comes when you couple them with an interesting te- technology. So the obvious one is um, self driving cars. If you can imagine you start buying self driving cars, then that creates an opportunity to uh, you know put your car rent your car out so to speak, right? Uh, for taxi use case, and you know if you couple a token incentivized 
taxi network thing uh, with self-driving cars becoming available, um, that combination of things may lead to you know a viable alternative competitor. Um, I generally like these kinds of models where you can combine some sort of technology change and the business model change concurrently. That, that, that's quite compelling. So Kyle, I want to also pick your brains on real-world asset tokenization. Like we we, we got a CE uh, on on the podcast a couple of months ago. Like he, like directionally, he was very bullish on that theme. Uh, so want to learn more about that from your end. Like, what are your thoughts on that? How are you looking at that uh, space? Do you think there's a big opportunity set there? Do you think the timing risk is way more than the uh, opportunities uh, for this theme? Um. I mean, real-world assets on chain will obviously be a thing, and I wouldn't be in crypto if I didn't believe that will that will happen. Um, so yes, it will happen. Um, I, I think the term is is not helpful from an investor's perspective, uh, in the same way that the term NFT is not helpful. A- a- NFT is kind of one of the most terrible terms in crypto because um, NFT, like a music NFT, is not the same as a PFP, which is not the same as a one-of-one art piece. Or for that matter, a, a one of a ringer like a one of three hundred or five hundred or whatever, like 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 those are just outright not the same thing at all. Um, like we we don't we no longer really talk about like the software industry. Like there's the travel software industry and there's the whatever the enterprise SaaS software industry and in, in or sub segments. And like yeah, they're all software, but like it's not useful to reason about them as software because it's too generic of a term. Um, NFT is an extraordinarily generic horizontal thing. Um, and, and so like, I, I kind of don't use the word NFT in any meaningful way internally. RWAs is a, is a blanket term to refer to literally everything that's not a native crypto asset. Uh, and, and like no one talks about bonds and equities as like the same thing. Cause like they're clearly not the same thing. Uh, so you need to be very clear and, and, the use of terminology and don't letting that impact your your brain in terms of how you think about things. So that's kind of meta rant number one. Uh, uh, will there be more to RWAs in the future than today? Yes. Um, uh, uh, is that thesis an investable thesis? I, I'm not sure. Uh, stable coins is the obvious one that that really matters, and um, but even like stable coins, it's like how do you go long stable coins? Not really clear how to do that, um, other than than buy equity in Paxos and Circle, which obviously those are not publicly tradable, so um, very hard to very hard to do that. Uh, disclosure: We are an investor in Paxos. Uh, um, so, like, yeah, like, do I want to go long? You know, bonds on chain. I mean, maybe, but like, unclear how to go long that right. Um, so. Uh, cool space, lots of experimentation happening, generally net positive, uh, unclear how to, to profit from the statement, go long RWAs on chain. Yeah, my, my thought will be US Treasury. Like That is one area I'm, I'm fascinated by. Bigger, bigger TAM than, than stable coins. Um, yeah, and I'm, obviously there's a lot of people doing that. There's, I think, Open Eden on Solana and there's Ondo on Ethereum. I have some money personally in, in Ondo um, just to experiment with it and play with it. Obviously, supportive of these things happening. Um, it's obviously great for crypto investors to be able to have access to those things on chain. Uh, not really clear 
what the exceptional profit opportunity is. I mean, yeah, sure, get the five percent yield, but like whatever, that that doesn't really matter. Um, you know, like there's going to be a million U.S. Treasuries on chain, right? Like it's it's just like it, okay. Uh, I'm not saying investing in Ondo or is good or bad. I, I don't really know. I like the Ondo guys. I'm friendly with them, but uh, it's obviously just like also a very competitive construct because it, it's just straightforward. So, got it, guy. I'm I'm from emerging markets, so it's difficult to get treasury like from a broker. Like even with interactive broker, it's difficult. Um, so from that perspective, the permissionless access, I, I think it's interesting. Uh, but I understand I understand your point in terms of the competitive. Like everybody can do that. Um, so Kyle, whilst I was researching um, before before this podcast, um, it occurred to me you have recently turned bullish on Filecoin. So I would love to un, un, unpack that as well. Like, what's your what's your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, lots of thoughts. Uh, I think the most important thought is uh, Filecoin is the most technically ambitious thing in all of crypto. Full stop. Um, I don't think second place is particularly close. Um, and I, I, I think that is very underappreciated by everyone in the world, myself included. Um, uh, but yeah, the, the, the scale of technical ambition is, is, is pretty extraordinary. Um, I think that's super important. Uh, two, uh, there's kind of two major things that, that are happening with Filecoin in, the, you know, in 2023 that matter. One is the FVM, uh, which launched roughly two months ago, two and a half months ago. Um, and uh, that enables you to have uh, DeFi on Filecoin hooked up to Filecoin native bindings. Um, I don't think DeFi on Filecoin is, is interesting to compete with DeFi on Ethereum that, or Solana. That, that's really stupid. Um, but DeFi on, on Filecoin connected to Filecoin native bindings around storage, compute, and bandwidth is fairly interesting. Um, so... Uh, that, that's kind of major on lock one. FVM launched two months ago. You know, we're just now starting to see the first FVM applications kind of deploy on, on mainnet and we'll start to see that stuff grow. We're being able to hook up programmatic payments uh, to Filecoin native um, things that happen in the real world is, is pretty interesting. Uh, and then the second major thing is, is uh, Saturn or their CDN initiatives. Um, Saturn is the name of Filecoin is, has two kind of CDN things they're working on, but um, the, the main one is called Saturn. Uh, and Saturn went live, I believe, in December or January, so roughly six months ago. Um, it's been very quiet. Um, we've made no noise about it, but but it is live. There's a few thousand nodes today around the world running the Saturn network, uh, or I should say the Saturn CDN, uh, which is built on Filecoin. And uh, there are no payments enabled right now, so the people who are running Saturn nodes are doing so out of the goodness of their hearts. There's no payments or, or, or economics there today. But, um, you know, the step one of Filecoin was data storage. Step two is, was bandwidth and CDN. And step three is compute. Uh, and, uh, you know, step two is starting to happen very quietly. Um, I, I expect to make, I expect to see a lot more noise out of uh, Saturn and, and the Filecoin CDN stuff more broadly in the back half of this year. Um, it's been live, you know, for six months in production. Um, obviously, they're they're fine tuning it and tweaking it and stuff. Uh, I suspect it'll become a lot more salient in the near future. And I, I think about, you know, storage on a standalone basis is like by definition kind of not super useful because like you store stuff, you need to be able to get it out. Obviously, for any any real world application, uh, 
and CD, you know, Saturn really unlocks uh, Filecoin as becoming a substantially more useful thing for uh, all developers in the crypto ecosystem broadly. Um, relatedly, as we just see, there's like all this decentralized social stuff happening. Um, I think a lot of that stuff will will map very nicely to, to Filecoin and Saturn. So Kyle, just to reiterate, is, is it the integration of the virtual machine, the storage and the CDN? Is that the, the is that yes. what excites you the most? Okay. Yeah, I, I think that stuff is uh, both the CDN and the FVM are, are fairly under uh, appreciated and, and misunderstood. Uh, and uh, both of those things are, you know, uh, live now and like I think will start to become meaningful growth stories um, over the next few months. So, so Kyle, just to follow up on that, do you think those three, like those two uh, modules, do you, do you reckon they would need separate tokens or do you think one token file would be sufficient? Like I, I obviously don't, haven't done the research on this and don't know much about it, but do you, do you reckon those two modules could have their own native tokens? Uh, well, I mean, the FEM should not have its own native token, and it is all powered by Phil today. And you use, you know, in the same way you you use ETH on Ethereum, you use Phil on the FEM. So no, there. Uh, on Saturn, there are very interesting arguments on should it use Phil or should it use its own native token. Um, I do not know uh, what the those teams will do, but certainly a very interesting set of decisions and, and debates to be had. Awesome, Kai. Um, before we conclude, was there any question I should have asked you but didn't? Uh, no, I think we've covered a lot of, a lot of ground from token economics to proof of physical work to Filecoin and a bunch of other things. So I think we've, we've hit a lot of ground here. Excellent. Thank you, Kyle, for joining us today. Um, I really enjoyed this episode. Thank you. Hey, Matty, appreciate you having me on. Thank you very much. Bye, everyone. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be considered as financial advice. Any opinions provided in this podcast reflect the views of the speakers only.